Jesus sees you. And that's good news because this text also tells us that Jesus has the authority to heal you. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Do you remember where you were on the day that changed the world? You know the day that I'm talking about. It was February 9th. 2009. Don't you remember how everything felt different after February 9th? I mean, we didn't look at each other the same way after that. We didn't think about ourselves the same way after that. We didn't relate to God the same way after that. Don't you remember how everything felt different after February 9th, 2009? After all, that was the day that Facebook added the like button. You remember? The like before that, and Facebook was actually cool back then. You guys remember that too? That was crazy, the dark ages, right? But, but like before that, you could still interact with things that other people posted. You could share it. You could poke someone. You remember that? But now, all of a sudden, with the invention of the like button, there was a visible, performative dimension to social media that has like since grown a hundredfold, like regardless of what your particular platform is. Right now, with the like button, all of a sudden, we can actually quantify how much people like us, right? Like we can tell and we can rate how, how good you are and how smart and funny and profound you are. We can measurably assign value to your thoughts and your humor and your opinions and your politics and your cat and your breakfast, like all the things that really matter in life, right? We can rate you. Now before the like button, right, it was like it's nice if somebody commented on something that you said and shared, but now with the like button, all of a sudden, we are raising generations who are tailoring how they live, what they do, what they post, and how they post it to gain the affirmation of the mob, right? Like the like button was brilliant because it tapped into this fundamental human desire that we all have to rate ourselves and to compare ourselves to others, to see where we rank, right? And it added this tangible incentive for us to turn our lives into a performance. And some of you can remember the dark ages before social media, right? Where really the like button, all it's doing is making visible what the world has been telling us all along, social media or not, that the world says, hey, you gotta be seen, you gotta be heard, you gotta walk through the door and say, here I am, world, like me, right? Now listen, I'm being a little bit sarcastic and a little bit hyperbolic this morning, okay? But, 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 we are all like being discipled by these algorithms that know how to tap into the fundamental human need that we all feel. We all wanna be seen, don't we? We all wanna be noticed. We wanna be liked. We wanna be loved. We wanna be chosen. We wanna be wanted. We wanna be valued. We all want to be seen. And so I'm not telling you social media is a bad thing. It's not at all what I'm saying. Go enjoy your reels, right? Spend all afternoon. That's okay. But I am saying be careful because we as human beings have this fundamental desire. Our desire to be seen can sometimes morph into a desire to justify ourselves by what other people think, to walk in and 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 to get people to affirm us, to, to walk in and say, hey, here I am, look at this picture, tell me I'm a good mom, right? Like, here I am, tell me I'm a good family man, look where I took my family, here I am, tell me I'm successful. And, and the way of Jesus is not to walk in and say, here I am, like me, look at me. 
Jesus actually offers us a better way as we follow him. There's an author by the name of Frederick Collins who says it like this. He says, there are two types of people. Those who come into a room and say, well, here I am. And those who come in and say, ah, there you are. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to be there you are people in a here I am world. Let me say that one more time. We are called to be there you are people in a here I am world. We're in Mark chapter one, like Kyle said. We've been in here for several weeks now. We've seen Jesus do a lot already in Mark chapter one. We've seen that Jesus has been announced as the one true king. He came, he got baptized by his crazy cousin, John the Baptist. He got sent out into the wilderness to be tempted. He came out of the wilderness declaring the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he called four fishermen to join him on his mission of bringing heaven to earth. And what we're gonna see as we finish up Mark chapter one today is that as Jesus embarks on this mission of bringing heaven to earth, even though Jesus is like the king of kings, he does and going around saying, hey, here I am, look at me. Rather, Jesus' mission goes around saying, there you are, there you are, there you are, I see you. And the reason Jesus can be a there you are man in a here I am world is that he is operating from the affirmation he received at his baptism. Well, remember in Mark chapter one, Jesus is baptized, God speaks. He says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And because Jesus is so full of all the acceptance and the affirmation and the love and the recognition that he needs from God the Father, he's then freed up, not to need to be seen by other people, but to say, there you are, there you are, there you are, I see you. We're gonna explore this today by looking at four scenes from the life of Jesus. Scene number one is Jesus in public. This is a very public scene. Here's what happens. Mark chapter one, verses 21 through 28. It says this. It says, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. That's an important word for today. Not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now pause right there. The demon says that Jesus is the Holy One of God. The demon's right. The demon is not wrong here. And this is gonna be something we see often throughout the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is gonna show up on the scene and the disciples don't understand who he is and the people don't know who he is, but the demons know exactly who he is. And Jesus is gonna tell the demons to shut up and not tell anybody. And, and Jesus, he's gonna do miracles and he's gonna heal people and then he's gonna say, hey, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Let this just be between you and me. Why? Because when Jesus embarks on his mission, it's not a here I am mission. It's a there you are mission. Okay, Jesus says to the demon, be quiet, <laughs> said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So let's set the scene. Jesus is in the village of Capernaum. It's a small fishing village there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's the Sabbath day, so that's the Jewish day of rest and worship and prayer. That's on Saturday and Jesus is in the synagogue. Every little village would have one little building where the Jews would gather to pray and to hear God's word and Jesus begins to teach and it's not long before his sermon gets interrupted by a guy who's possessed by a demon crazy right imagine but the text says that the guy didn't come in busting through the back door it says he was already in the synagogue 
So we can imagine, we can assume this guy was part of the congregation and he had an impure spirit, but nobody had ever seen it before until Jesus came. And Jesus sees him. He sees a man who needs to be set free. There you are, Jesus says, I see you. Listen, this is really important to know today. Um, It's basic, but Jesus sees you. He sees everything you've ever done, everything you're ever gonna do. He sees your hopes, he sees your fears, he sees your regrets, he sees what you're thinking and feeling at this very moment. Jesus sees you. And here's my prayer for our church. God, may sin never be safe hiding in this place. Sin, I don't ever want it to be safe hiding in here. Jesus sees all of it. And listen, we're, we're not fools here. Uh, we may seem like it sometimes, but we're not. We know that there are people who come in and out of this room every single week and they hear God's word and they receive communion and they sing the songs and they talk to their friends and they shake hands and they leave this place unchanged. And, and the evil that's in us, in our church, it's a lot more subtle than demon possession, right? But I think for every single one of us, if we look at ourselves in the mirror, we know that inside each of us, there still lingers some greed, some bitterness, some jealousy, dishonesty, resentment, lust. The harsh reality is that inside this room right now, there are hidden addictions and there are untold stories that are rotting some of you from the inside out. And we are not here to condemn you. We are not a museum for saints. We're a hospital for sinners, okay? And so my prayer for you, not from a place of judgment, but from a place of deep love, is that the presence of Jesus would bring all of that to the light and that sin would not be safe hiding in here. Jesus sees you. And that's good news because this text also tells us that Jesus has the authority to heal you. He has the authority to heal you. In fact, as we walk through the Gospels, it's, it's funny, every time Jesus comes face to face with an impure spirit like a demon, Jesus doesn't have to like say some kind of magic words. He doesn't have to go through some kind of fancy exorcism with all these rites and chants and spells and smells and the whole nine yards. Jesus just speaks and the enemy has to flee. Jesus has the authority to heal you. Now, if you wanna get nerdy here with me for just a second, there's two big Bible words for authority that you run into sometimes as you read scripture. And in the Greek, right, let me sound like a major geek, here's the two words. The first word is dunamis. Say that with me, say dunamis. And dunamis is where we get our word dynamite, right? Like dunamis stands for explosive power. Like a 300-pound NFL lineman has dunamis, right? He's just got some sheer force. That's not the word, though, used for the authority that Jesus has here in Mark chapter one. The word used for this authority is exousia. Say exousia. And exousia is more of a positional kind of authority. In other words, that 300 pound lineman, he may have dunamis, but the little 5'8 balding guy in the zebra striped shirt with the whistle, he has exousia, right? And no matter how much power the lineman has, when that little dude blows the whistle, the lineman has to obey simply because of the position that guy holds in his striped shirt. And Jesus has exousia. He has positional authority because of who he is. That Because he's the king, when he blows the whistle, the enemy has to obey. Jesus has the authority to heal you. Here's why that's good news. Some of you um, have some darkness in your life still. And by some of you, I mean all of us, right? 
And some of you may have a story that you've never told and a habit that you can't break. And you may have spent so many years in this same old cycle that you think you're too far gone and it's too dark. And when you hear us talk about healing and restoration, that's great for everybody else, but it doesn't apply to you. And when you think about getting better and getting whole and getting healthy, you think, no, I can't do it. And you're right, you can't, but Jesus can. He has the authority to set you free. That's why we have the prayer team that gathers around the edges of the room every day at the end of every service and they're gonna be there again this week with their green lanyards on. We wanna pray with you because that's for you if you have big problems in your life. That's also for you if you have little problems in your life and I think that's all of us, right? We wanna pray with you and we wanna pray over you and we wanna walk alongside you. The journey to healing is long but Jesus has the power to do it and we wanna pray over you in the authority of Jesus' name because he has the authority to set you free. This is the public scene, that's scene number one. We're gonna see this take place in some other scenes too. Here's the second scene. Scene number two is Jesus in private. He moves from this big public place to a private home and take a look at what happens, verses 29 through 34, it says this. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So. Uh, Here's the scene. Uh, Last year, I got to go to Israel and I actually got to go to Capernaum. We found the ruins of this village. We know where it was. Here's a a picture of the village of Capernaum there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is an aerial view. You can tell it's just a small little fishing village there on the shore. Notice this right here though. This is the synagogue where Jesus cast out the demon-possessed man. This building over here is where Simon Peter's house was. We'll go to picture number two. Picture number two is taken from inside the synagogue. This is the synagogue. Now this is the ruins of a synagogue from about three or 400 years after Jesus. So this is not exactly where this took place, but that synagogue was built on the foundation of the original synagogue where Jesus cast out this demon-possessed man. Here, take a look at this next picture. Um, You'll see the foundation here, that those black stones, that is the foundation of the original first century synagogue that Jesus cast out this demon-possessed man in. This stuff really happened in real places. The next picture here is the view from the synagogue. So if you're standing in the synagogue and looking out, this is what you see. This is the village of Capernaum. Streets, shops, houses here. This strange looking building off in the distance, that is a church that has been built over the site of where people think Simon Peter's house was. There's a lot of big scientific reasons why they think that's Simon Peter's house. You can go to the next picture here. We'll see the ruins. Um, This is Simon Peter's house. Archaeologists tell us there's about a 60 to 70% chance that this is where um, his actual house was. I guess, I'm not an archaeologist, but they say that's pretty good odds. So this is very potentially where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Pretty incredible. So Jesus walks out of the synagogue and walks about 50 yards to Peter's house. Couple simple things about this story that I love. Number one, they leave church and they take Jesus home with them. I take you, I hope you take Jesus home with you today. And they take Jesus home with them because they've got some problems in their house and they're hoping Jesus can fix the problems in their house. And I hope you tell Jesus about the problems in your house because he can fix them. And listen, when I go home after I preach, you can ask my family, like I am trashed, I'm shot, I can't put words together the whole rest of the afternoon, I'm a joke, I wanna take a nap and watch some football. But Jesus goes home after church 
and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And word gets around in a small town and soon at sunset when the Sabbath day is over, people start showing up and bringing all the sick people they can find to Jesus. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the demon-possessed, headaches, hangnails, you name it. You've got a problem, let's go see Jesus. He's the fixer of problems. Now go with me in your imagination back to Capernaum for a second. Imagine you're at Peter's house that evening and the sun sets, starts to get dark, the stars are coming out and people start to line up outside the door one by one. And Jesus peeks his head outside that evening and he's met with a hundred eyes of hopeful anticipation. People who are hurting, who have been overlooked and avoided their whole life, but not by Jesus. Jesus seals, sees them and he walks down the line one by one, looking each of them in the eye. There you are, there you are, there you are. And he reaches out his hand to a lame man and he helps him up. And he touches the forehead of a feverish little girl. And he puts his thumbs on the eyes of an elderly blind woman. And he reaches out to the sore shoulder of a middle-aged farmer. And all of a sudden that night in a little fishing village, a silent night turned into tears of joy and the echoes of laughter down dark village streets. It's an amazing scene to think about, isn't it? As Jesus works his way down the line, healing everybody. Now, let's be honest with each other also for a second. Put on your glasses of a skeptic. What would a skeptic think of this? Let's, let's say, hypothetically, that we are assuming that these miracles actually happened, and I believe they did. Even if these miracles actually happened, like, it's great, that's cool, as you read through all four Gospels, we see Jesus did about three dozen miracles. That's not nothing. That's like more miracles than I've done, right? But, cool. So a little fishing village gets happy and some people get healthy. That's wonderful. They're gonna get sick again. And if we're really honest, that doesn't go very far to solving the problem of pain for the whole world, does it? It doesn't go so far as to fix the pain in your life. The harsh reality is that a lot of you have prayed for miracles that you have not seen happen. So why in the world should we believe that these miracles happened and why do they matter for you? Here's why they matter. Because every time in the gospels that you see Jesus do a miracle, it's a sneak peek of what the world looks like when God is king. He's giving you a preview of coming attractions toward the day when he returns and evil will no longer oppress and death will no longer destroy and disease will no longer ravage and nature will no longer run astray. Jesus is letting us know every time he does a miracle that he's not given up on the world and that he's still working toward a day when he returns and the day he returns, he's gonna make a world where there are no more sirens and no more locks on doors and no more divorce courts and no more battered women's shelters, no more caffeine no more ibuprofen, no more memory care units, no more funeral homes. It's gonna be a good world. And when Jesus returns and makes everything new, he's gonna make a world where every child is loved and every spouse is cherished and every elderly person is listened to and every body is strong and every heart is full. Every time you see a miracle, Jesus is saying that day is coming. And so we then, as followers of Jesus, we pray for miracles. Like, listen, I'm not ashamed to tell you that everything we see Jesus do in the Gospels, I believe he can still do today. That he does still have the authority to heal. And that we've seen him heal people in miraculous, unexplainable ways. So we're gonna pray for healing. And the amazing thing is that as a follower of Jesus, when you pray for healing, 
I promise you he will answer that prayer. He will answer it one of three ways if you're a follower of Jesus. Number one, he might answer it immediately. You might receive an instantaneous, miraculous answer to your prayer. He might heal eventually. Jesus can also work through doctors and medicine and hospitals. But even if Jesus doesn't answer your prayer immediately or eventually, we have the promise that he will answer it ultimately on the day when we are all restored with him. And so we have the promise that Jesus is healing, that he still has the authority to heal. Go back in your mind with me to Capernaum. Imagine as the sun rises the next morning and Peter stumbles out of his house and he's kind of groggy, he's half awake, and he looks around at the streets and what does he see? Maybe, just maybe, he sees a street that is littered with stretchers that are no longer needed and gauze and bandages and crutches lying on the ground, the aftermath of a healing. That's what I wanna see and that's what we will see on the day when Jesus returns. But as Peter looks around, he realizes that pretty soon the crowds are gonna come back and want more of Jesus and he realizes there's something missing. Jesus is nowhere to be found. So here's scene number three. First we see Jesus in public, then we see Jesus in private. Then scene number three, we see Jesus in solitude. In solitude, beginning in verse 35, it says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching the good news in their synagogues and driving out demons. So the disciples, after this great day of miracles, are thinking, awesome, yeah, Jesus did it. The crowds love us, the people are with us. Let's kickstart our kingdom mission. But Jesus has different priorities. He he refuses to be like seduced by the like button seduction of the here I am world. He's not about that. He goes from the public place to the private place to the solitary place, and there's nothing here I am about the solitary place with God. In fact, Peter shows up and he thinks, Jesus, what are you doing? This is a waste of time. We've got work to do. Peter thinks that Jesus being with God is a waste of time. Now, I don't know about you, um, what you're like. I'm a type A personality. Time is very important to me. Productivity is very important to me. It is way easier for me to give up my money than it is for me to give up my time. In fact, just confession moment, on the days when I came home, when I come home and it's very obvious that I've like had a pretty rough day, Rebecca knows that the only real reason it's been a rough day most of the time is just because I didn't get as much done as I wanted to. Like productivity's hard and that means I am susceptible to the sin of being too busy for God. Anybody else? Here's the amazing thing we see in the Gospels. You are not too sinful for Jesus to use you. We're gonna see Jesus love to use people whose lives are an absolute train wreck. You are not too sinful for God to use you. But you might be too busy. I have a friend named James Meeks who's a preacher up in Chicago. He's an amazing man. Um, He planted Salem Baptist Church in Chicago 38 years ago and he just retired from ministry a couple weeks ago, 38 years. And over his 38 years of ministry there at Salem Baptist, they've baptized 20,000 people. Just one of my absolute heroes in ministry. And we were together this summer and and we we were just asking him like, James, 
in a world where people are failing left and right and they are just spectacularly blowing up their lives, in a world where so few people finish well, how did you do it? How did you stay faithful? Why did God bless you in this way? And he said this. He pointed to these specific verses here in Mark chapter one. And he said, every morning for the last 30 years, I got up and I prayed. (laughs) That's it. Can I ask you a question? Are you willing to waste time with God? Are you willing to go to the solitary place with him? Are you desiring so much to be with him? Are you so aware of your need for his sustaining power in your life that you're willing to just let some time go and let your to-do list slide so that you can just be in his presence? Are you willing even to be like Jesus that even when you're tired and every urge in your body says, lay down, you need to sleep, stay in bed, the longing of your heart cries out to override your eyelids and says, no, my eyes may want to sleep, but my soul needs to waste some time with my father in heaven. Jesus knows that more than sleep, more than the affection of the crowds who want to see another miracle, what he really needs is the sustaining love of God in his life. He needs to sit still and to be with his father, to rest in the affirmation of his baptism. And it is only because of Jesus's prayer in the solitary place that he gained the power for the public place. It is only him resting in the presence of God that enabled him to be filled up with the love of God to such a degree that he could be a there you are man in a here I am world. You gotta get to the solitary place and waste some time with God. Here's our last scene for the day. We see Jesus in public, in private, and in solitude. And scene number four, we see Jesus back in action. Jesus goes out from the village on his main mission. He's declaring that the kingdom of God has come near and he runs into this guy who's demon possessed, or excuse me, who has leprosy. Verse 40 says this. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, he said, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So Jesus is going around town to town, he's preaching, when all of a sudden he's confronted by a man with leprosy. Now leprosy was a collection of skin diseases that made you lose feeling in your nerves. If you had leprosy, it didn't hurt. In fact, you couldn't even feel pain. And that may sound fine, but it was actually a curse. What that meant is, today, if you had leprosy, you could walk around on a sharp metal screw all day long and never know it. And so people who have leprosy would often lose the use of parts of their body, entire limbs would fall off, but even worse than the physical suffering of leprosy was the social and the spiritual suffering. Because for a Jewish leper, if they contracted this disease, they'd be forced to leave their home and leave their family. They couldn't go to the synagogue, they couldn't go to the temple because they were ritually unclean. They had to stay six feet away from every other person for the rest of their life, and any time somebody got close to them, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, with no hope of healing. Can you imagine the shame of that? The isolation and the loneliness? And yet this one leper, in a gutsy move of desperate faith, dared to break the law and come to Jesus, and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Notice the leper doesn't even say, you can make me well, you can make me better. He says, you can make me clean. And Jesus said to him and to you, I'm willing, be clean. Moved with the, in fact, the life-giving mercy of God himself, Mark says, he reaches out his hand and he touches him. Can you imagine how long it had been since anybody had touched him? And when Jesus heals somebody, he is completely healed. The man is emotionally healed by a compassionate touch. He's physically healed when the leprosy has to flee before the king of kings. He's relationally healed and able to go home. He is spiritually healed and able to be back among the people of God. But can you imagine being somebody in the crowd watching this happen, like watching this leper pop up out of nowhere and come toward Jesus and watching Jesus' hand reach out to touch him and everybody in the crowd's thinking, no, Jesus, don't do it, you're gonna get infected. But what they didn't understand is that when Jesus wields the authority of heaven, the flow of impurity works backwards. And when Jesus touches the leper, he isn't made unclean, the leper's made clean. And when Jesus goes into the house of a Gentile, Jesus is not defiled, the Gentile's made whole. And when Jesus eats with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and the dregs of society that everybody else wants to ignore, Jesus is not tarnished or corrupted or degraded. Rather, his holiness overrides their impurity and honor and blessing and restorative grace just bursts forth from him like a tidal wave. Jesus says, there you are, there you are. There you are, I see you, and I am willing, be clean. And us, now, as the people who've been touched and cleansed by Jesus, our calling is to go out in the same way, to go out into a world where everybody is self-consumed, where the people around us are just desperate to be seen and to be noticed, saying, here I am, here I am, here I am, help me, see me, love me, like me, and we get to be the people of Jesus who say, yes, there you are. There you are, there you are. We see you and Jesus sees you and he's willing. This is what the followers of Jesus have always done. Last year when I got to go to Rome uh, for a couple days, we got to go down into the catacombs, which were these underground tunnels where um, early Christians would bury their dead and they would sometimes gather to worship and to pray. I think we have a picture here of the catacombs. And uh, there's a lot of different catacombs around. The specific one that we got to go down into, there's 500,000 people buried down there in this stretch of tunnels, miles and miles of tunnels in this one catacomb underground. And, and the reason they did this was because a lot of the time in ancient cities, if you were going to have an official group that met on a regular basis, you had to register with them as uh, uh, register with the city under some kind of an official designation and we have ancient records and so of all these different clubs that would spring up we had like there's literally there's a an, an early drinkers club and a late sleepers club right there's all these different kinds of clubs and so when the Christians realized they needed to register their group many of the early Christians registered themselves as burial associations as an excuse to have a church they decided you know what we're gonna be there you are people in a here I am world and we believe that burial should not just be for rich people. And we're gonna show the love of Jesus showing that no matter who you are, no matter whether you're male or female, slave or free, rich, poor, no matter your class or your nationality, you deserve the honor of a proper burial for free. And the church with that kind of there you are love just exploded. All across the empire, like plagues broke out, Christians were the first ones in and the last ones out, caring for the poor and for the sick and for the dying. And that's the legacy that we are called to carry forward also. That means practically we should do that in some big ways. 
Like we should be radical about this. You should care about what happens to the poor. You should give your money here so that we can help the poor. You should go on a mission trip to our global impact partners. You should serve with our local impact partners here. But it shouldn't just happen in big ways. Actually, primarily, it starts in the small ways. That Jesus wants to use you to extend his healing and his blessing to the people who are right around you right now. You're probably familiar with Mother Teresa who spent her life serving the lepers in Calcutta, India. And and Mother Teresa said this. She said, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. You can read any study you want to. They all say the same thing, that we are living in a society that is facing an epidemic of loneliness as people are realizing that the culture of a here I am world leads only to isolation and self-doubt and crippling anxiety. And so we get to be the ones who walk in and speak a better way, who go to our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and say, there you are, there you are. Jesus sees you and we do too. Let us be your friend. Can I tell you one story and then we'll be done? It's the story of a there you are man and a here I am world. His name is Johnny. Johnny the bagger is what he goes by. Uh, There's a preacher by the name of John Ortberg who tells this story. He says this. He says, Johnny works at a grocery store. One day he went to a training event led by a speaker by the name of Barbara Glanz. She was talking to 3,000 frontline workers for a supermarket chain. Truck drivers, cashiers, and stalkers. Barbara was speaking on how people can make a difference. She described how every interaction with another person is a chance to create a memory, to bless someone's life. She talked about how important it is to look for those moments. She placed on the walls, as she always does when she speaks, posters with inspiring sayings. She told some stories and then she went home, but she left her phone number behind. And she invited the people at the conference to give her a call if they wanted to talk more about something that she'd said. Well, about a month later, Barbara received a call from one of the people at that session, a 19-year-old bagger named Johnny. Johnny proudly informed her that he had Down syndrome. And he told her this story. He said, Barbara, I liked what you talked about, but I don't think I could do anything special for our customers. After all, I'm just a bagger. But then he had an idea. Johnny decided that every night when he came home from work, he would find a thought for the day for his next shift. It would be something positive, some reminder of how good it was to be alive or how much people matter or how many gifts we are surrounded by. And if he couldn't find one thought for the day, then he'd just make one up. Every night, his dad would help him enter the saying six times on a page on the computer, and then Johnny would print out 50 pages. He would take a pair of scissors and carefully cut out all 300 copies and sign each one. And then Johnny would put that stack of pages next to him while he worked. Every time he finished bagging someone's groceries, he would put his saying on top of the last bag. And then he would stop what he was doing, look that person right in the eyes, and say, I've put a saying in your bag. I hope it helps you have a good day. Thanks for coming here. A month later, the store manager called Barbara and he said, Barbara, you're not gonna believe what's happening here. I'm making my rounds and when I got up to the cashiers, the line at Johnny's checkout aisle was three times longer than everybody else's. It went all the way down the frozen food aisle, he said. And so the manager got more checkout lines open but he couldn't get any of the customers to move. They all said, that's okay, we'll wait. We wanna be in Johnny's line. One woman came up to him and grabbed his hand saying, you know, I used to shop in your store once a week, but now I come in every single day. I wanna get Johnny's thought for the day. See, Johnny's doing more than just filling bags with groceries. He's filling lives with hope. 
A few months later, the manager called Barbara back again to tell her that Johnny was actually transforming the whole store. He told her that in the floral department, it used to be that when they had a broken flower or an unused corsage, they would just throw it away. But now, he says, when they have an unused flower, they'll just go out into the aisles and find an elderly woman or a little girl and pin it on her with a smile. He says the butchers started putting ribbons on their cuts of meat that they wrap up for customers. And get this, the manager said that the people who make their shopping carts are trying to make carts with wheels that actually work. (laughs) Don't tell me God can't do miracles today, folks. Jesus sees you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he has the authority to heal you. And when he does, it is our calling as the followers of Jesus to go back out into the world to the lost and the hurting and the lonely with his eyes to say, there you are, there you are, there you are. He sees you, and we do too. So I wanna pray over you, if that's all right, just that Jesus would give us his eyes to see the world. And I want you to take your hands out and fold them in your lap, or hold them open in your lap if you would, (laughs) sorry. And I just want you to receive this from Jesus today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for seeing us, for knowing us. My prayer in particular right now, God, is, is for those of us in the room right now who are hurting and lonely and confused and desperate for the ones who came in here just limping, just dragging in here today, they barely made it. God, I pray that you would meet them, that you would see them, that even in some way you would reach out and touch them with your authoritative power to heal, and that they'd have the courage to come. And God, for those of us who have been healed by you, and we're still in process, God, we're not there. We need you every day. But my prayer is that you would send us out from here, that that we would go to the solitary place and that we would rest in your love, and then we'd go to the private place and in our homes with our families, with the people that you've called us to do life alongside, that you'd give us your eyes to see them, to see their hopes and their dreams and their hurts and their fears, and to be your presence in their life, to speak your truth to them. And in the public place, God, when we are interrupted and when we run into people and when it's not what we had planned, just that you would give us the eyes to see the person right in front of us and to speak hope into them the way you've spoken it to us. We love you so much and we need you. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people say, amen. 